1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. Take your Bible there and uh, leave it there. Open it up. Uh, if you're looking at your phone, leave your app open so that, so that you can see these words and we can continually reference them together this morning. Uh, these are the words of God given to the Apostle Paul uh, 2,000 years ago as he wrote to the church in Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. One of the things that the gospel does for us is that gospel transforms us and makes us a people. It takes us from those who were walking in darkness, like we talked about last week, and moved us into light, moved us into a state where we now understand and know what God's plan in redemptive history is. How is it that God is going to make a people, redeem a people for himself? And the answer is through the person of Jesus Christ. His death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension where he rules and reigns now at the Father's right hand. The good news of the gospel is that yet when we were still sinners, Christ died for us and offered us freely forgiveness as individuals for the sin that we were born into and the sin that we continually commit in our day-to-day lives. Christ died for the forgiveness of our sins and to credit to us his righteousness so that we can stand before a holy God, a God who is set apart, a God who is other, and we can hear at the end of our lives, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. This is what the gospel does for us. It transforms us as individuals. It gives us light and shows us how God has worked in human history, bringing about redemption for people. Now, there are many effects that the gospel has on our day-to-day life. It's not that's just a one-time message that you sing and you consent to mentally, and you think, okay, now I'm good, I'll move on. But no, there are many effects that the gospel has in our day-to-day life. Uh, And one of those is that, again, God is making a people. God has been, from the time uh, that that creation was spoken into existence, God has been making a people for himself, for his own possession, who are walking in the light of the good news of what he was doing and has done and will do in the person of Jesus Christ. And as as God makes a people for himself, what he does is he begins to teach us how to be a people. How is it that we are to live in relation to one another? Because of what Jesus has done for us, because of how Jesus has changed us and transformed us and made us afresh, How now do we relate to one another? And the New Testament is clear over and over and over again that that it is how we relate to one another that reflects clearly how we relate to God. John, in his letter of 1 John, is consistently saying um, how you love God is reflected in how you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. 
You cannot say that I love God and hate your brother. Those two things do not work together. They stand in opposition to one another. And so much of the New Testament, especially the epistles, especially the the letters that are written uh, to churches and to individuals and uh, to the people of God in the New Testament, a lot of those letters have to do with how do we relate to each other and how how do we love one another well. And so when we come to this passage this morning, Paul is beginning the end. He already said finally one time in the beginning of chapter 4, but he was only 60% through the letter at at the beginning of chapter 4. He said finally, but now he begins to uh, give quick uh, summaries of how the Thessalonians should relate to one another and how we also subsequently should relate to one another as the local church. And so there are many things packed even in these three verses. And I think originally I was going to take all of this through verse 24, but as we begin preparing for this morning, uh, it seemed as though we weren't really going to get very far. Uh, and so 12 through 14 is where we, where we wound up. So as we've studied 1 Thessalonians together, it really should come as no surprise to us that Paul is very interested in in the Thessalonians and the love that they have for one another. And we could even say that this is one of his main concerns, working in conjunction with the theme of everyday faithfulness. What does it mean to live a life of everyday faithfulness? Well, it means to ensure and to uh, commit yourself to loving your brothers and sisters in Christ in the local church. One of the clearest fundamentals of the Christian life is loving one another. It's commanded oftentimes over and over and over again in the New Testament. How is it then that we should love one another? Love isn't just an affectionate feeling, although it can be an affection for one another. We defined love a few weeks ago in this way, and I hope this continues to be helpful this morning as we consider these three verses. Love is obedience to God that flows from the heart. Love is obedience to God that flows from the heart. You cannot be a loving person towards your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, or anyone for that matter, and disregard what God has said. If God is who he says he is, if he is the creator of everyone and everything, if everything on earth and in the universe belongs to him, and if he is the one who spoke everything into existence, then adhering to and doing what he says is the deepest, most abiding form of love. A life of disobedience to God rather than in opposition to this indicates a heart that is far from him. A heart that is far from him will quickly focus exclusively on self and will not focus on loving others. So when we get to this section in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we see that Paul begins to close again the letter in earnest with these quick hitting understandings of what it looks like to continue to live a life of love for one another as the church relates to one another. Verses 12 through verse 22, uh, I'm going to call this I'm going to say that Paul is in verses, not that what came before wasn't this, but in verses 12 through 24, Paul is going to give a brief outline of what the duties of a church member looks like. 
And we'll consider again what he writes in verses 15 through 24 next week uh, in, in this passage. But when we think about church membership, we are first thinking about the way that we relate to one another as a body. Paul in Romans, the, his letter to the Romans writes in Romans chapter 12, 4 and 5, he says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we though are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And again in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, he says, For just as one body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. And then in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 26 and 27, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. These passages that I just read in Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12 represent our understanding of church membership. I think that there are many opportunities uh, or many uh, misconceptions about what church membership is. Uh, We sometimes think of membership in the same way that we would understand uh, our membership to the country club or membership to the Elks Club or some social organization or something that we would pay our dues and show up to a couple meetings. But that should not be our approach to the local church. The definition of member in the, in the Bible is very different than our definition of member of an organization within, uh, within, our, uh, within our world. Church membership, rather, is a gift from God as he fashions us into a functioning whole. As he takes individual members, as he takes individual people, and he brings them into the people of God, making them a people for himself, He genuinely connects us in ways and gets us moving uh, as a whole in a body. So when we think about church membership, we have to think about the context of the metaphor that Paul is continually using of of a body. Each individually, each individual uniquely crafted and shaped by God for the purpose of serving the body in love. Your your fingers are uniquely crafted to pick up things and to put them into a pot and to cook them so that you can eat and then pick them up, pick up the fork and use the fork to put them in your mouth. And then you are fed and your family can be fed. Your feet are uniquely crafted to move you from the fridge to the sink and the stove while you do those tasks. And it all happens together in concert with your inner ear so that you don't tip over. Each individual in this room who is a new creation in Christ is uniquely crafted to work in concert with the other members, the other parts of the body in partnership with them to serve each other in love. Therefore, church membership is a call to use one's gifts and skills and talents and time and financial resources and whatever it is that God has given to you to serve the body in love. A hand that is not attached to the body has no mouth to shovel food into it. It has no teeth to brush. It has no head to scratch. And Paul says, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not uh, make it any less part of the body. 
And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. So for that reason, we practice formal church membership at Buffalo City Church because the body should be definable through individual identification with the local church. Every person in this room should be able to define which hands are attached to them and which hands are attached to others and, uh, and, and which hands are severed from the body laying on the floor. And by formally identifying with a particular local church, a church member states that he or she intends to use what God has given them to build the church up in love. But just like you wake up each morning and get yourself ready for your daily tasks and you do so as a whole, so the church must be moving together in unity as a whole. And so we must then understand what is required of us to live together as those who have been redeemed by the power of the gospel, who have been set apart, who are being made into a people. When you go to work or to the school or to the gym, all of you goes. When Jesus leads the church, the church goes together. Eyes and ears don't think to themselves, we're going to stay in bed while the rest of the body goes to the gym. And so we go where Jesus leads together. So yes, we are individuals uniquely shaped and gifted within the local church, but we are also headed in the same direction as one body. And as we're headed in the same direction, the primary part of the matter is that we would be loving one another in obedience that flows from the heart. And so Paul shares directives. He shares the direction that a church, in this case the church in Thessalonica, should be moving together what they should be doing together as members of a one body. And these three ideas then will guide our time together uh, in this passage. There are really three things given, and they're kind of, they come in chunks. There are multiple words in each, but the first is this, respect and esteem. Second is to be at peace. And finally, to patiently admonish, encourage, and help. Respect and esteem, be at peace, and patiently admonish, encourage, and help. Again, these these commands that Paul gives to the church are designed to help them live in light of the truth of the gospel and in love for one another. So let's consider the first thing that Paul writes here. This is the Uh, verse 12, and the first half of verse 13, when he says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Paul begins asking the Thessalonians to respect the church elders and esteem them highly in love. Now, we know that Paul's talking about elders, pastors, those, that office of the church, because of the little word there embedded in the middle of verse 12 when he said, and are over you. 
Oftentimes in the New Testament, the word overseer is seen for the pastor elder role. And so Paul is alluding to those who are over them in the pastor elder role. Not over you like lording over you or above you in some hierarchical order, but those who oversee your faith and those who shepherd the, the flock. Now it's been true throughout the history of God's people from the very beginning, from the formation of Israel to the modern day church, that so-called pastors have been doing exactly the opposite of what they should be doing and feasting, feasting on the fat of the flock. They've been abusing their positions with, within the church. We see this very clearly in Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel is sent to prophesy against Israel and says, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have brought back, the, the you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because they, there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over the mountains and on every high hills. My sheep were scattered over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. What Ezekiel is saying is that there are those who are appointed to oversee, to care for the flock, to bind up wounds, to uh, administer the truth, to uh, strengthen the weak, to uh, find the injured, to bring back those who are lost. But the leadership of Israel had failed to do all of those things. Instead, they had sought their own agendas. They had decided that they would pursue their own interests. And by doing so, the people in Israel suffered. But this isn't just a problem in ancient Israel. Modern men on stages uh, whose messages amount to not much more than self-aggrandizement are, are, are littered across our world. And we must know and begin to identify how they masquerades as shepherds and eat the fat of the flock and, and use the sheep for their wool. But notice how God tells Ezekiel, he says this, he says, um, you have not fed the sheep. You do not feed the sheep. This is how he speaks to these false shepherds. Contrast that with what Jesus says to Peter at the end of John's Gospel. In John chapter 21, Jesus commands Peter at the end of that Gospel three times. He says, feed my lambs. He says, tend my sheep. And he says, feed my sheep. Paul, or uh, Jesus in this instance, is pointing to Peter and saying that thing that those ones in Israel were doing that Ezekiel was prophesying against in Ezekiel chapter 34, that is not you. Instead, you will feed the sheep. You will lay your life down for the sheep. You will, just as the good shepherd has done, uh, take the sheep in your arms and move them 
take them back to a place uh, where they belong. They were scattered over the face of the earth, and you will go and you will seek them out. And this becomes Peter's main mission in the book of Acts, is to go to the Jewish people and to preach and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. And Peter would go on to write in 1 Peter chapter 5, in verses 1-3, through 3, he says this, taking his cues from the Lord Jesus Christ. So I exhort the elders among you as fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, there's that word, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So, this is the exact opposite of what is happening and what Ezekiel is prophesying against in Ezekiel chapter 34. Peter says it's the exact opposite that the shepherd should be doing. Not under compulsion, but willingly. Not in a domineering way. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Being examples to the flock. Jesus and later Peter and Paul had Ezekiel 34 in view whenever they, whenever they addressed the topic of church elders. And so the men appointed as elders in the newly planted church in Thessalonica needed to hear exactly what their role was. And the congregation, the members of the church in Thessalonica, needed to hear exactly how they were to relate to those who were appointed as shepherds above them. This, shepherding the flock, is the first order of business for myself and for Pastor Blaze and Pastor Mark and for Pastor John. These are the, the things that we go to first and foremost in any discussion that we have about the body. What does shepherding look like? And we are held to this standard. This is the labor that all elders, church elders, are assigned to perform within the congregation where they serve. And this work is the foundation of the respect and the esteem that Paul asks the Thessalonians to have for their church elders. So what does Paul mean when he says respect? Um, he says, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. So by respect, he means to acknowledge the work that they're doing by admonishing you. Admonish is to teach or to instruct. And the respect that has a congregation has for its elders is that they submit themselves to the teaching and instruction. And that happens in congregational worship like it's happening now or it might happen in other venues as well. Um, but the respect that Paul is talking about is directly related to the instruction and to the admonishment that he sees, uh, that he sees church elders doing and performing. Sometimes there is confusion about what pastor elders should spend their time doing, but the role of pastor elder is to teach and equip the congregation for the work of ministry and to shepherd the flock, leading it as Christ the Good Shepherd leads. This respect also acknowledges the application of biblical wisdom to everyday matters of life, everything from stewardship and finances to uh, biblical parenting, from navigating marital challenges, to considering an employment change. If you think that you don't need shepherds, you have pridefully disregarded not man, 
but God. And so to respect the elders of the church is to value their biblical teaching and to sit under it as often as you can. What Paul also says to esteem their work highly in love, or to esteem them highly in love because of their work. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, Paul, write, or Paul writes that Jesus gifts the church pastors and elders, and esteem means to honor. And that doesn't, going back to that, that first Peter chapter 5 passage, that doesn't mean that the elder, the pastor elder demands honor, not in a domineering way. Peter tells elders that they should do the work of elder not for shameful gain or in a domineering matter. But again, the flock would see and rejoice that the pastor elder is laboring for the sake of the body of Christ by laying themselves down first, following in the footsteps of Jesus first, recognizing that it is, in fact, Jesus Christ who is the head of his church and not the pastor elder. And so, to respect the elders of a church is to value their teaching and to sit under it. and to recognize that they are, in fact, setting an example of following Jesus. The honor is contingent on the work that the pastor elder does. Paul says, Paul says here, that you should, in fact, weigh the work that your pastors and elders do, and you should weigh it against the standard of Scripture. You should not weigh it about what, how you feel about the situation, but you should look to see what the requirements of the pastor-elder are, and you should weigh your pastor-elders with, with the same standard. If the pastor-elders fail to teach and instruct and shepherd and build up the body, then they are not truly submitted to the good shepherd and should not be honored as pastors and elders. Brothers and sisters, many of you know this to be true, that there are men out there who claim to be pastors who have little regard for God's word and only regard the flock in so, in so far that they can be fed by it and clothed by it. But this must not serve as an excuse not to sit under the teaching of faithful pastors the abuses of one man or a percentage of men does not apply to all men who fill the role of pastor elder. And a shepherd that injures the flock and steals from the flock and cares nothing for the flock as the flock is scattered is no shepherd at all. And the proper response for those who have sat under and seen abuses by false shepherds and seen those abuses exposed is to seek to find a church where the pastors and elders are submitted to the Good Shepherd. Some of you have been significantly injured. Some of you have been hurt very, very deeply by men who are blind to their sin. Friends, Jesus, the Good Shepherd, offers healing and hope for the future. But don't run from the church but seek the place where the shepherds model their ministry after the good shepherd. So this is the first thing that Paul communicates to the church in Thessalonica here in this passage. The second thing that he says is the second half of verse 13. He simply says, be at peace among yourselves. The idea here 
be at peace seems just like a state. Like I'm in the state of peace with other people in the church. But the heart of what's communicated here in these words is that the people of the church, the members of the church, would be cultivating peace amongst each other. That they would be actively pursuing peace and sowing seeds of peace in and among themselves. We should understand what Paul writes here as an active pursuit. And peace here, again, working to sow peace and root out quarreling. Peace does not come by ignoring one another. Because of indwelling sin, actually it's the opposite. If we do not engage with one another, we tend to drift into territory where we do not believe the best about others. Where we begin to think, well, that interaction was odd. And so then you begin to, in your own heart, cultivate frustration, bitterness, and resentment against people. So we must continue as people, as the body of Christ, to be actively pursuing one another. When we think someone is against us, we come to any given interaction, any given, uh, any given uh, um, event together, where we are together looking for a fight or seeking to avoid one another. But we must pray for and pursue peace with one another even when we disagree. Now, many times we pray for peace for ourselves. We pray, God, give me peace in this difficult situation at work or in this challenge with a family member. Give me peace as I go about my day feeling anxious about the 35 things that I have to get done in the next hour and a half. We pray that prayer very often. But what Paul is communicating is that we must pray that we would have peace not only in ourselves internally, but also with one another. And then ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to us how we could sow, sow peace and cultivate peace amongst each other. The world oftentimes looks into the local church and they see a lot of infighting. It's not that there wouldn't be disagreements in the church. Of course, there will be disagreements. But even in the midst of those disagreements, praying for peace, praying for uh, unity and direction together, seeking peaceful solutions when we do, in fact, disagree. Paul says this, I think, at the, in the second half of verse 13, on the tail end of discussing respect and esteem for pastors and elders, because many times the discord that Satan attempts to sow between a congregation and their pastors and elders. And sometimes those quarrels and disagreements within the church is because the congregation and the pastors and elders don't see eye to eye. But this is rarely, if ever, anything, uh, anything like a biblical or theological matter. It's usually always about money. It's usually always about direction, ministry initiative, or just the demeanor or, or attitudes of people involved. The congregation and the pastor and elder are not on different teams. They're not on different teams. God didn't set up the coaching staff and the, and the team. We're all, in fact, on the same team, and we're looking to the same coach. We together, as people, are moving together in the same direction. And just because we have 
different roles to play within the body does not mean that we can sow discord and say it's them versus us. When churches believe that they that their pastors and elders and their leadership are on different teams than the congregation, they get into trouble. And they think they reduce every interaction into a power grab or vying for who is going to get the leg up in this situation. But this, according to Paul, shouldn't be the case by any stretch of the imagination. Be at peace amongst yourselves is understanding. You are all part of the same body. You all have unique roles and functions to play within the, within the church and to operate within those things. Cultivate, therefore, peace with one another. This is at the heart of Paul's command here to be at peace amongst yourselves. The final thing in verse 14 that we see, three things, four things actually, that we see him say in verse 14. Uh, admonish, encourage, uh, and help. Those three things, admonish, encourage, and help. And at the end, this is a fourth thing, but I think the design of this passage is to say that the fourth thing applies to everyone, and so I'm going to use it as an adverb instead. Finally, patiently admonish, encourage, and help. Be patient. That's the last thing he says. But if you look closely, it's the one that applies to everybody. He says, aim your admonishment at the idle. Aim your encouragement at the faint-hearted. Aim your help at the weak. But be patient with them all. Now this flows right out of the command that Paul says to be at peace. Because there won't be any peace amongst a church or church members if they are impatient with one another. But we should be willing to wait for one another as we grow and as we mature. The idea here is that each individual is different. Again, uniquely made by God and uniquely designed for a role within the body. And so, the reality is that as we grow, we will in fact grow at different paces. We won't grow at the same rate. And the Holy Spirit doesn't operate on our timeline. Even as individuals, oftentimes we think, why haven't I gotten beyond this thing yet? But the Holy Spirit operates on His own timeline, not our timeline. And sometimes discord is sown among Christians because the Christians who are growing and finding out new and amazing things about what God is doing in the world and what He said in His Word aren't willing to wait for those who are growing at a slower rate. They're not willing to be patient. This is a way that leadership in the local church and pastors and elders get, get it wrong many, many times. They run out ahead of the flock The flock is a mile behind. The flock is being devoured by wolves. Well, they're out of head, casting vision. But we must be patient with one another. We must not run out ahead of one another and fail to love our brothers and sisters 
by demanding that our brothers and sisters match the pace the Holy Spirit is moving them. We must not say, God's moving me this way, and so he's moving everyone exactly the same way. That's impatience. We draw false conclusions about our brothers and sisters then. God has grown me. Is that person even a Christian? May this not be the case of us. But we must be patient with one another and submit to God's timing for us and for others. And with that said, Paul says here that we are to admonish the idol. Where we show patience to everyone, we admonish the idol. Again, to instruct. That's the heart of the word admonish. And Paul here has work in view. Like our day-to-day vocational work. That's what he's looking at. The Christian rejects laziness. This was a problem for the church in Thessalonica. They thought, Jesus is coming back. We're just going to hang out. I'm probably not going to put in any work today. I'm going to sit at home and just look at the sky. But Paul is like, don't do that. That's not, that's not good. You're, what you're doing is you're giving an opportunity for outsiders, those who are outside the church, to think these guys are a bunch of freeloaders. They're not contributing to society in any way, shape, or form. The Proverbs has a ton of things to say about the sluggard and the lazy person. And so Paul, when he says to admonish the idol, he says to encourage your brothers and sisters to wake up early, to get to work, to actually work, to not throw, scroll through your phone and forward funny emails and take excessive breaks around the water cooler. He says, reject that kind of thinking in your Christian life. And But of course, sometimes also Paul has in view that there's idleness in spiritual matters in the life of a brother or sister in Christ as well. Our fellow church members who have stalled out sometimes need a tow rope. And while we are commanded to be patient with one another, we're also commanded to encourage and to instruct and to help others see the good news of Jesus Christ and what he's done and the impact that that has on everyday life. Most people are idle in the sense that they are, that they are in fact busy with everyday day-to-day life. But when we see idleness in areas of Bible reading and prayer, in attendance and congregational worship, and service to the body of Christ, We must encourage them and show them what God has said about those things in His Word. We're to point out idleness in our work and in spiritual matters in each respect and patiently remind one another of what God requires of us in His Word. The third thing that Paul says is to encourage the faint-hearted. Now, this is the third time in 15 verses that we are told to encourage one another. And this time, Paul says, specifically, uh, he names the faint-hearted. Those who are struggling to remain hopeful in their day-to-day. Those who are struggling, mourning, thinking about the difficulties of their day-to-day life. Those, when persecution comes, may be tempted to shrink back. And so the body must continue to encourage its members. Those who simply need comfort need to be comforted. 
And just like, the, like Paul said in these past 15 verses, in verse 18 of chapter 4 and verse 11 of chapter 5, to encourage one another with the hope of Christ's return. He now indicates that there are those who might be quick to doubt the details of Christ's second coming. And so the response is to encourage them. Christ will return. He will, he will come back. Strengthen their hearts with truth and hope for the future. The final thing that Paul says in verse 14 is to help the weak. Help the weak. Now, weakness isn't a detriment to the body of Christ. Weakness is not a detriment to the body of Christ. When others are weak, it does not slow us down. It gives us the opportunity to do exactly what we're commanded to do, to love one another through helping one another. This is what God does, and this is at the heart of the gospel. God takes weak people and he brings them into the kingdom. God disrupts the wisdom of the world and says the inheritance of eternal life and all the power and the glory that come with that come to weak people. And so, together as a church, when we stop to help the weak along, we are not wasting time. We're not wasting time that we think we could be using to do big things. We have to be careful here. Because oftentimes there are weak among us and we go off to do big and bigger and better things and we disregard the weak in our midst. The world is in fact repulsed by weakness. And we think to ourselves, slowing my life down to help others get simple tasks done throughout their day is not the best use of my time. I've got big, important things to do in my life. But we recognize that we're not wasting time that we could be using for bigger and better things. Instead, we show that God is bigger than our efforts. By slowing down to help the weak, we show and put on display for the world that God is bigger than our human efforts. God will bring about His perfect plan and purposes through the imperfect people who make up the local church. I can't get my head around that. That doesn't make any sense. How can a perfect plan come from an imperfect set of circumstances? It doesn't make sense. And yet we believe with our hearts that this is how God has designed it and will bring it about. And so the encouragement here to help the weak and to be patient with everyone and to encourage the faint-hearted and to admonish the idle is the power of the gospel shown. If we just wanted to get a bunch of things done, we would, in fact, ignore all of these people. But that's not what we're about. The power of the gospel is seen in a show of weakness. A man on a cross. When there's a serial killer in our society 
who's committed a lot of murders. They have power. They create fear in communities. They get the death penalty. Because the only way to strip them of that power is to execute them. But Jesus was executed. And in the cross, not because he did anything wrong or broke the law, but because he kept it fully. And when he was executed, in the cross, the full power of God was put on display. The power to save people from their sin was accomplished when Jesus said, It is finished. To bring weak, powerless, impotent people into the kingdom of God, to make them a people in order that they might love one another and put his power on display for the world. Admonish the idle, encourage the faint hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. In conclusion, this morning then, as we've looked at these three verses, I want to give you just two thoughts. Two thoughts for you to take away this morning. The first is this. Church members are to first consider how they relate to one another. When you think about church membership, don't think about all the trappings. Think about yourself and say to yourself, how is it that I, as a member of the local church, relate to the others in this room? That's the first priority. How do the fingers relate to the toes? How does the ear relate to the eye? These ideas and thoughts must drive our first understanding of the local church and what it means to be a member of the local church. And the entirety so far of the instructive portion of this the section of this letter, which begins all the way back at the beginning of chapter 4, is about relationships within the church. Paul says that abstaining from sexual immorality is a matter of brotherly love. And Paul says that the goal of considering brothers and sisters in Christ in all matters of life is so that we may walk properly before outsiders. Paul says that the understanding of Christ's second coming is for the purpose of offering one another hope and encouragement. Paul says that arming ourselves with faith and love and hope is for the purpose of encouraging one another. Paul says that patience and admonishment and encouragement and service and peacemaking and respect and esteem are all top priority because they indicate how we relate to one another. How do we relate to one another? Paul unpacking all of these doctrinal truths is giving these to us for the purpose of relating well to one another. Friends, you and I cannot have any hope of relating well to one another apart from the person of Jesus. We cannot, in fact, understand how we can relate to one another because Christ is our example of how to relate to one another, but also because he freed us to love one another, to build one another up. God reconciled us to himself through the cross of Christ. And this example of love, greater love has no one than this than that he who laid down his life for his friends. But it is also the event that cleanses us and gives us a new heart and the ability to love one another. 
a heart that's free to walk well in relationship with others. And if we look at what Paul writes here in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians 5 and separate it from the beginning of the letter where Paul spells out a dramatic change that has happened in the life of the Thessalonians. If you remember all the way back how Paul rejoiced over the reality that they received the word of God not as the word of man, but as the word of God. And the transformation that he saw and thanked God for in their lives. This all comes down to, and because of those transformations, they now have freedom in Christ to encourage one another, to be patient with one another, to cultivate peace with one another, to respect one another, to esteem one another, to serve one another, to love one another. And so what should be the ongoing priority of a church member? The ongoing priority of any, all church members is to live a life of love towards one another in response to and because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The second thing here is to pray for and to pursue peace and patience. Pray for and pursue peace and patience. In an instant society, we expect results now. We want results and we want them quickly and we're willing to sacrifice far less than we should for those results. We think to ourselves, I deserve that and I should have it now. And the reason here I'm singling out the peace and the patience in verses 13 and 15, because those are the two things that Paul says that should be aimed at everyone within the church. Everyone in the church, be at peace among yourselves. Be patient with them all. Be patient with everyone. The respect and esteem, he says, go to pastor elders. The admonishment goes towards the idol. The encouragement towards the faint-hearted, the help goes to the weak, but the patience is for all, and the peace is towards everyone. And so everyone in this room, at any given moment, can be seeking to cultivate and pursue peace and patience with one another. So each day you wake up this week, pray that God would give you patience. Pray that God would give you patience towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. So many of you patiently endure relational difficulties every single day. And patience in relational challenges are an act of faith. You say, Lord, I don't know. I don't know how or why this relationship has gone south, but I submit myself to you entirely in it. This will bring about patience towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. And and also pray. Pray that you would know how to sow peace. We cannot wait for conflict to begin thinking about peace. We cannot wait for conflict to begin thinking about peace. A simple way to sow peace is to listen to your brothers and sisters in Christ. To listen to what they have to say, what they're struggling with, what they're going through on their day-to-day. It is far easier to be at peace among yourselves when you trust one another 
You may not know how that person operates. We gravitate towards people who are like us. Our personalities sometimes don't mesh. But a simple show of love and the act of listening will in fact build trust that later on when someone thinks to themselves, are they for me? They will in fact know that you are for them. When the time comes and you feel like you're on the path to conflict or find yourself in the midst of conflict, saying, how did we get here? You'll be reminded that this person isn't against you. Pray for, pursue peace and patience. Friends, this one's not on the list, but reflect on and bathe in the good news of Jesus Christ and what He's done for you. For a church that resists and forgets the gospel relating to one another is impossible. Relating to one another well, patiently, and peaceably is, in fact, impossible. Recognize that God has made a way. He sent Jesus Christ to the earth to die for us in order that we might be cleansed and given the ability to love one another. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, would you transform us? God, would you cause us as those who, who are part of your church to consider heavily how we are to relate to one another? As you have made us a people, continue to make us a people. Strengthen us in love. Give us the opportunity this week to encourage one another to admonish one another, to be patient with one another, to help one another, so that we might reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ to the world around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.